What's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Marlon, with Intuitive Minds Podcast. This is episode 56, and today's guest, we have a legendary in the game, Sparks Entertainment Group, Nigel Sparks. How you doing, man? I'm great, man. How you doing, man? Thanks for having me. Thank you for being a part of this. I'm doing good, man, hanging in there one day at a time, uh, getting ready for this COVID to be over, and everything's back to normal, hopefully soon. So, you know, how you Yeah, hopefully. Um, I'm handling it, you know. Been busy, you know, mm-hmm. staying safe. But you know, we still working, you know, mm-hmm. records still gotta come out. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? hmm hmm Break down the story on who Nigel Sparks is, man. Where is he from and everything? First off, I'm from Queens. Grew up in Queens, born and raised in Jamaica, Queens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's funny, I when I when I grew up, I never wanted to be in the music business. Mm-hmm. I had an opportunity to um intern at VP Records because I'm Jamaican and my family's, you know, pretty big in the record business. Oh, okay. So I had an opportunity to intern at VP Records, but I also had an opportunity to intern on Wall Street. And at the time, Wall Street was paying me, mm-hmm. I want to say $17 an hour to intern. Mm-hmm. And of course, the record label, they didn't want to pay me nothing. Yeah. So <laughs> as a kid that likes to get fly from Queens, Mm-hmm. Of course, I went to Wall Street. I got to go get the money. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's the New York mentality as well. You know, that it's the hustlers mentality. That whole city just gives that to you. As soon as you wake up, you walk out of the door. It's like, how do I get to it now? Because everybody's getting to it. You know what I mean? It's almost like a, a, a mini race, but it's really not a race. You know what I mean? That's how I feel New York is. Exactly, man. And, you know, growing up, when I grew up, you know, we, we rocked. Kooji and Icebergs and Jordans and my, my parents in Jamaica, they wasn't buying me none of that. You know what I'm saying? So if I wanted it, I had to get it myself. And I grew up in Jamaica, Queens, which you know was known as a crack neighborhood. So I didn't want to sell drugs because I seen all these crackheads and all these other people. It's, it's, you know, I seen the what happens, shootouts and all that other wild stuff. Yeah. So growing up as a kid, my family, they kind of kept me from that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, the only other way I knew how to get money was to work. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see it all the time because I used to live in New York and go there often and uh, seeing kids on the metro station. I remember seeing this one specific day. It was like four kids. It must have been like eight or 10 or something like that. And I'm talking about, they were on one train cart on the cart and then they came out and then one kid pulls out a wad of cash and they start counting and counting and then they start splitting it between each other. And then once that was over, it was like, all right, let's get back to the train. Let's start selling these candies again. And I was like, it's early. It's the early, but it also depends on where they're coming from. You know what I mean? The circumstances that they're coming from to be able to go that far. You know what I mean? But it's just, exactly. it's a beautiful thing to watch because it's like, yo, like, they're going to make something out of themselves later on because, look, they're starting early. And that's the beauty about cities like that. They make you grow up faster. Yeah, you got to, you know, you got to be a hustler, man. Like, really, like, you know, it's in some people. And it's not in some people, but, you know, it was in me, thank God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, what about, like, music-wise growing up? Who are some of your favorite MCs and some of your, like, what kind of music did you grow up listening to? I'll be honest. I didn't listen to no other music outside of, reggae music mm-hmm. until I was about nine years old, right? So all I knew was like dance hall, mm-hmm. you know, roots reggae. And then, you know, I have an older brother 
who's six years older than me. So he put me on to like, you know, Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul and mm-hmm. Nas. And I actually heard Reasonable Doubt Jay-Z album the first day it came out in 96. Nice. My brother and his boy skipped work and we went <laughs> to Action Park. They bought they bought the tape and we drove we rolled the tape mm-hmm. all the way up to Action Park. And it was the first time I ever heard, you know, Jay-Z's album, Reasonable Doubt. And I was a fan ever since. But yeah, my brother and my cousin, Jamar, they, they put me onto all types of hip hop music. Mm-hmm. And from there, you know, I was I was just hooked, you know. Uh, I threw a lot of parties in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to Cardoza High School, shout out to them. Mm-hmm. And my boys went to St. John's Prep. So we threw a lot of parties. I, I brought everyone from Cardoza and they brought everyone from St. John's. And mm-hmm. we was doing that from like 15 all the way to the, through, through the end mm-hmm. of high school. Mm-hmm. So, and then our parties back then in New York, you know, there's hip hop and then there's also reggae. Mm-hmm. So it was yeah, like course, the, best, yeah. the best of both worlds. So mm-hmm. I kind of feel like I grew up in the club because I used to be in a club, the real club, around like 15 years old. Yeah, early. You know, because a lot of my friends was either party promoters. Yeah. I grew up with old, I hung out with older people all the time. Mm-hmm. They were party promoters or they were the DJs. So we would be in the club. I would carry the crates. I was one of the guys that carried the crates mm-hmm. in the club. That's how mm-hmm. I got in the club. Or... If it was a reggae dance hall, uh, you know, my, my uncle, he managed Stone Love, which nice. is a big sound system in New York. So if I wanted to go to the dance hall, I called him and, you know, me and my cousin Cheech would just go, go there. Cheech is like three years older than me. Right. So we would go to the club one, two o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So that's kind of like where my air really comes from. And on top of that, my pops was a DJ. So my yes. pops would play all types of music in the house, all types of music. And that kind of like, you know, that's where I got got my air from. Crazy. So like early, early. So you can you can you even remember the first record you ever heard as a as a kid or nah? Nah, the first record I ever heard as a kid, nah, man. Like it's too it much, so right? Many, it, it's so many records because like you gotta understand as a kid, we Jamaican mm-hmm. and we go into Jamaica. And, you know, in Jamaica, the dance hall culture was a dancing culture. So of as course, kids, yeah. as you see today, a lot of kids do a TikTok. We ain't had yeah. no TikTok. Yeah. You put, my grandmother would have come back from Jamaica or we would go to Jamaica and they have all these dances. So we playing music and we finally trying to learn the dances, like the Bogle dance, the Tati dance. So it's like, you know, I can't even remember the first record I heard because I probably was so young listening yeah. to the reggae music that mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Do do you have any like because you I, I you said that you like bought your first reasonable doubt tapes? Do you have any tapes from from like back in the day still that you still own from like those types of records? Like tapes? Reasonable, nah, reasonable I don't got no tape. tapes. Nah, I don't have no tapes. I probably I never was a hoarder. You know what I'm saying? So oh uh, okay. What once it got the CD, all my tapes is gone. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> All my CDs is gone. You know, oh, what I'm saying okay. I never, I never was a hoarder like that to save tapes and all uh, none of that. Okay, because for me, I collect CDs. Like, if you look at my uh, CD booklet, it's completely like it's got like Raekwon's first album. It's got a bunch of hip hop stuff, Tribe Called Quest, Big Pun, and I'm trying to save it. And I'm trying to save it because who knows, maybe it'd be worth something one day. But 
but a lot of people don't even keep CDs. But I don't know. Yeah. Maybe someday it'll be worth something. But who knows? But it it might be. You know, it's a tangible item. You know, nowadays, mm-hmm. record sales is wax is actually selling again because it's a tangible item that people mm-hmm. can hold in their hand. And you know, fans they kind of want that, especially yeah. if it's a great album, like some mm-hmm. albums you can listen to back to back. Not too many albums today you can listen to back to back, but back then you could listen to the whole album straight. And, you know, when you play it on wax, it's a whole different type of sonic mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different vibe. Now, you yeah. worked in you worked in real estate before and then making the leap into the music and entertainment. What are some, like, traits that you picked up from real estate that you applied into the music industry that utilized it? I mean, oh, man, so... The real estate, I come from, I started in the sales, sales, like, like, again, I was a hustler. So mm-hmm. my, my boy's mom's owned the real estate office and I worked there after school from like 15 years old until I went to college and then I got my real estate license at 17. So, you know, it, what I do in music is I sell records to artists and record labels Right. Uh, now. So it's kind of like the same thing. Like it's all sales. It's really just sales, mm-hmm. but a house is really going to sell itself. If you bring the right buyer to it, right? right? Same thing with a song. A song is going to sell itself. This is a great song and you have the right artist for it. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very, it's very similar in that sense, but the structure of real estate is totally different from the structure of music right. business. The music business structure is the most frustrating structure I've ever worked in in my life. What do you mean? Like elaborate yeah. a little bit on that. You know, it's like communication is bad. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is like on the fly. Like, you know, I like, you know, working on Wall Street, I was taught to be prompt, be on time. Right. You know, never never waste anyone's time. If you're on time, you're late. You know, you gotta be early. That's that's just the Wall Street mm-hmm. mentality, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when I intern, I used to get to work at seven thirty in the morning. I'm walking in with the president of the company. In the music business, it's the total opposite. Yep. They've had they'll have you waiting for a meeting for three hours. You know, my yeah, it's tricky. One of my first partners was um was Tango from Compound Entertainment, right? And I'll never forget this. Mm-hmm. So I met Tango. I was going up to Def Jam actually to play records for for Jay Dixon, mm-hmm. who you know who was a DTP at the time, right? Right. You know, because his brothers are shocking Jeff Dixon, so they man it's ludicrous. So I was going to play records for Jeff, and I ended up being in the elevator with Tango. I didn't That's know right. who Tango was at the at the time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but we in the elevator start talking, and then at, this is this is when you know Def Jam was on. I think it was on Eighth Avenue. So we go upstairs, and there's no. If you go to that floor, mm-hmm. there used to be a reception desk right there, but there was nobody at that desk. Right. So Tango's walking in. And I'm trying to wait at the desk for mm-hmm. somebody to come to get me in. Tango, like, yo, where you going? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to DT, please pay some records. He's like, yo, come in here. They, they offer down for mine. When you finish paying them records, come play me some records. Yeah, nice. All right. So after that, I go back and his assistant is there. And, you know, he tells, she tells him that I'm there. He makes me wait probably about two hours to meet with him. Mm-hmm. Right. So but I was patient. This is what I wanted to do. Yeah. But I see all the plaques in his in his office. I'm like, yo, this he's somebody. Yeah. So, Patience so is the, a key virtue at that moment. 
there you go. So after waiting two hours, we finally met. And that same day, he sent me to the studio with Neo. Crazy. What was that experience like with Neo? Man, that, that experience was that experience was great because they sent me to the studio. And at the time, I, I, I'll never forget this. Give Me Everything was like, the record he has with Pitbull was like maybe top 10, hot 100. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, at, and at the time I was, you know, I was working with the Philly Fat Boys who was mainly R&B producers. Mm-hmm. They were assigned to John Legend. But I also had, you know, some other producers that I was working with. So when I met with Tango, I played him like EDM type music because I knew that was hot for them at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when I went to the studio with Neo, he was working on, I want to say a Calvin Harris record. So I was just there waiting for him to finish that. And then Miguel walks in the studio, but huh. him and Miguel was having a session. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, the timing is funny because we literally, my producers at the time of Philly Fat Boys, literally just finished a song with Miguel and John Legend that was called Tonight. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So 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 Miguel comes in the studio. He's like, "Oh, what's up, man? How you doing?" And because he remembered the session, he started talking about John producers at that point. So Neil turns around, and looks at him. He's like, "Oh, that's right. Tango sent you here to play me some records." So Jeez. I played him some some EDM type stuff, and they end up really they cut a song. Neil and Miguel they cut a song, but I could tell Miguel wasn't really feeling that that type of vibe. He wanted mm-hmm. more R and B vibe. But the EDM got me in the door, so I went with that. Yeah. And then, you know, fast forward maybe a couple months, because I used to stay in contact with um, Tango's assistant, right? And, you know, nobody knows, but she used to let me know every time they was in town. Mm-hmm. She would be like, yo, nice. they back in town. They going to this event. They going to that event. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, I will pop up at all of those events. So then we went, we're at an ASCAP event, and Neo... Um, he says, like, yo, you still got John producers, the fat boy? I said, yeah. It's like, bring them to the studio, the same studio that, that we met the first time. Bring them to the mall at 1 o'clock. Mm, so nice. I call my clients, and they think I'm playing. Like, yeah, right. I got no session <laughs> with Neo. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I'm like, no, that's it. It's Germano Studio, meet me there. So they go to the studio. Um, Neo... Super talented guy. Mm-hmm, so they go yes. to the studio and they probably play Neo about six tracks. Mm-hmm. And he wrote four four songs in that one day. Right. And then nice. at the end of the session, he goes tango and to Sean, they come in and he said he, he said to Tango, he's like, yo, I need these guys in Atlanta on Saturday. Mm-hmm. This this is Thursday. And he's working on the final touches of his red album. Oh man. Yes. Okay. So we get to um. So it's it's a wild story because on Friday mm-hmm. we're supposed to be there at Atlanta on Saturday, but on Friday we still don't have the plane ticket. So we didn't get the plane ticket till like I want to say two o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. and our flight left at seven a.m. Sheesh, that's a small window. A very small window, but that's you a- know. I kept my, I told my clients, yo, and there's three of them. So I'm like, yo, listen, mm-hmm. as soon as these tickets come, mm-hmm. we got to be out. Mm-hmm. They stayed up the whole night. We flew to Atlanta. 
you know, we, work, we finished working on the album. We ended up doing three songs on the album. Forever Now, which we co-produced with Stargate. Um, we did Unconditional Love. Mm -hmm. And then we did another record. Damn, what's the name of this record? Man, man that's like a big, like, shoot moment. That's like a man. Very yeah, cool. did it, you know, that same trip. Um, I, that's when I partnered with Tango. I had, I, you know, we went out to dinner. I was like, listen, let's partner. You have all the relationships. I have the talent. Mm -hmm. You know, let's partner and let's teach me, teach me the business. And, you know, mm -hmm. the rest, the rest was history. History. Crazy. Dude, what's, what's something that you've learned from Tango what, with working with him? I learned a lot. Mm -hmm. Is like a specific you know, one that sticks out for you or? He taught me everything. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, he taught me just like, really know the business, know, know the contracts so that you could kind of dictate the type of deals that you want to do instead of like having your attorney dictate the deals, mm -hmm. you know? Um, oh, and, you know, he taught me a valuable lesson about just keeping your word too. Like, so it was a time where I had a record that Nelly wanted, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I had already promised Brooklyn Johnny that he could have a record for one yeah. of his groups. Mm -hmm. And of course, my clients wanted Nelly to have a record because they were the bigger name at the time mm -hmm. versus Hamilton Park, mm -hmm. who was uh, Andre Harrell's group through Atlantic at the time. So Tango was like, nah, you already told Johnny that he could have a record. Sell it to them because, you know, it'll, it'll take you the long way. And, you know, I end up selling the record to Brooklyn Johnny um, because of that, really. Mm -hmm. And an another, really the, the really the best lesson Tango taught me was that the coaches always last longer than the players. Of course. That's a fact. That is a fact. Like, no. so you, have to, you have to know the, the industry you're in as well so you can know who the coaches are and who the players are. Without that, you're kind of lost. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just like... You know, it's like talent, they come and go. Mm -hmm. But the coaches behind that talent, they're, yep. they're here to stay. Mm -hmm. You don't never want to, like, burn no bridges with the coaches because, you know, here I am in the business eight, nine, ten years later, mm -hmm. and I still have relationships with all the, the managers and the A&Rs that yep. I did from back then because, mm -hmm. you know, that's what he taught me, you know? Mm -hmm. That's that's a key lesson too. That's something I picked up as well. Like working with different people, it's like it's not the so much about the artists. It's about some so much about the the relationship with the managers. That is yeah. the number one because the managers, like you said, managers don't they they're there to stay. Artists come and go. That yeah. is it's a, it's a tricky situation. I mean, you look at examples like Steve Lobel. You know what I mean? He's been in the game since the '80s. You know what I mean? That's mm -hmm. he, he still. You know what I mean? He went from like run dmc to the bone thugs to the nipsies you know what i mean it's still going you know what i mean now he's got scott Storchin, you know what i mean who's a legend in himself so the longevity of you know what i mean it's important it's important to keep those relationships very very exactly important. shout mm -hmm. out to steve man steve from queens too mm -hmm. you know yep. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh now moving on to the idea of a besto app how did that come about oh my app was stole so like I told you, I, I've always been a hustler growing mm -hmm. up. So, you know, my cousin Cheech had this idea about a payment system for churches, mm -hmm. right? Because he went to church 
and he didn't have no cash. Right. So he called me one day. He really just called me Vinton. Right. Oh, okay. <laughs> he called me Vinton. And I, you know, I heard him out and I actually wrote it down because mm-hmm. I wanted to do some research. Mm-hmm. So I did some research on it. This is before like Venmo and, you know, Zelle and all these other apps. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I did some research on it and the app, I wanted to create an app that was basically a peer to peer payment system. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to start with churches because it was a $50 billion industry. And it was it was basically the ice age. Everyone in church, they still pay with checks or cash. And mm-hmm. the millennials, they don't really have cash. So, you know, we created this app. I did a whole bunch of research. You know, I brought some people along. And, you know, we, we built the app. And I, had, I was advised by a friend of mine named Aston Moats, who was mm-hmm. the first employee for Dropbox. So... He was advising me on, you know, what I need to do, what I don't need to do, how much it's going to cost me, et cetera, et cetera. He actually saved me thousands and thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of dollars, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because when I would meet with app developers, you know, I already did the wireframing. I already did the branding for the app. So I would present it to the app developers. But because I had asked and he told me because of all the work that we put in already, what to spend and what not to spend. Right, so mm-hmm. one one app developer tried to call charge us a hundred thousand dollars. Sheesh! To build an app, we actually ended up doing it for ten k. That's right? the dollars. Yeah, you're saving. Yeah, money. yeah. Holy fuck! So it, it, that's a, that's a that's a crazy story too because I did have an investor. Right, mm-hmm. I had an investor, and everybody know this guy. His name is Troy Carter. Okay. Right? So. Nice. So I, um, the first time I met Troy because of me working with John Legend and the Fat Boys was at John Legend's anniversary for his Get, Get Lifted album. Troy was managing him at the time. Mm-hmm. And one thing about me is like, I like I, I read about a lot of people that I aspire to be like, and Troy's one of them. So when I met Troy, I knew he was big in the technology, right? And I, and I pitched him this store app right there on the spot. He gave me his contact information and, you know, we had a call and I flew out to LA to meet him and Troy was ready to invest. Uh, he told me that I should be doing technology and not managing yeah. no producers, but yeah, yeah. I, my love, my love for music was more than me doing technology. I just seen an opportunity and I want to take advantage of it, but he told me he would want to, he was willing to invest if I could get a chief technology officer with equity in my company. Smart, yeah, you need that, yeah. Hmm. I feel that that. So Troy obviously never invested. The app never went anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that was one of my failures, you know? But mm-hmm. I do have experience of building apps and technology, and it was a great experience. I don't really call it a loss, I call it just a lesson, yeah. you know? Yeah. Do you plan on like doing something in the future with apps at all, or just kind of in the back burner? I mean, I'm an entrepreneur, so if there's an opportunity I'm going to explore it. Run with it, you know? yeah. So that's 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 been my whole life. Mm-hmm. I've had plenty of ideas, I have plenty of failures, but I have plenty of successes too. But mm-hmm. you know, if you don't try, who knows what's gonna happen? I'm not afraid to lose no money, I'm not afraid to lose no sweat hours, no sweat equity, because yeah. and everything you learn. So that's my approach to it. So it's like if there's opportunities for tech, absolutely, because data 
is the new gold. I would love to have some data that I have equity on so I could pass it on to my children's children's children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty of it. You know what I mean? Yep. And uh, now let's keep it Queens really quick. Uh, one of your clients is DJ Clues, Desert Storm. He's actually one of my favorite producers slash DJs. What's the story behind that relationship? So Clue wasn't a client of mine. So Clue was like, we went into business together. Like, oh, okay. just how I went, went it, like I built my career on strategic partnerships and relationships, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The first one was with Tango to Sean and Compound Entertainment. Right. And then um, through Compound Entertainment, it's funny, I reconnected with a friend of mine named Randy Parker, right? Mm-hmm. I had met Randy in Baltimore years prior to meeting him at the record label. Right, I stayed at his house and everything. Right, and I, I, I didn't even remember that. And one day we leave at Def Jam, and he's on the phone with a friend of mine named DJ Action. Right, and I'm like, yo, there's only one DJ Action. Yeah, so I'm like, yo, you know Action? And Rand like, yeah. So we get Action on the on the phone and Action like, yo, y'all already know each other. Mm. Now I used to come down to Baltimore, Morgan State, and we was throwing the parties. We stayed at the crib. Mm-hmm. So ever since that we 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 made that connection, we've been cool ever since. And you know, Randy's a super veteran in the business. He right, he yeah. managed, you know, Rockwiler his prime. He managed Troy Oliver, mm-hmm. right? He managed a whole bunch of people. So he would till this day, he still advises me on a lot of moves and situations. So he is really cool with Clue. I was working with Clue. So he brought me in the fold with Clue, and we all managed this artist named Chris Echoes. So that's how, you know, I was in a partnership with Clue, and you know, we did a record with Chris and French Montana called Smile. Mm-hmm. You know, we had it playing on the radio, and you know, another another Queens guy, Shine Money XL, yeah, wanted, wanted he wanted to sign Chris. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we. You know, he was super excited, brought it to Epic. This one was at Epic at the time. I had already did a record with Shaw on Yo Gotti's album mm-hmm. with Neo, with Neo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that I have a gold gold award, gold album award for that. So me and Shaw was already cool. So he was trying to get Chris into the situation, but you know, the ladies in the room didn't wasn't feeling Chris's performance. So that's why mm-hmm. Chris never got the deal. But if you ever heard of an artist named T Fly, T Fly got signed. T Fly got signed because L.A. Reid would have signed Chris. Sheesh. Yeah, but that those times were great because I remember I, I was in his room. Mm-hmm. I was in Salam Remy's office, right? He's mm-hmm. another guy from Queens. So mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. it's, it's me, Salam, Clue, Shah, and Randy and Chris having a meeting, right? Chris is the only outsider. He's not from Queens. Right. He's from, yeah, Ar- yeah. He's from Arkansas, right? Mm-hmm. But I had a moment when I was in that room. It's like, damn, like, I'm really in a room with Salam Remy, yeah. <laughs> DJ Cool, John Buddy Excel, and yeah. Randy Parker. <laughs> and they're all influential in music, but they're all from Queens. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So I was like, that's one picture I wish I would have taken. Just being yeah, in the same building yeah. room with them. Mm-hmm. That's a prominent room right there. Holy yeah, like God. I damn near, I think I damn near met every major executive from Queens: Russell Simmons, 
I remember meeting Russell Simmons. I had a meeting with him for my first artist, Lydia Caesar. And Russell was an asshole, right? Ha. I had a, like a press kit at the time. You got to have a press kit with the pictures of the CD and all this other shit, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm prepared to meet Russell. I give him on the folder. He look at me. He's like, yo, this shit on the radio? I'm like, nah, not yet. He throws the shit back at me. He's like, man. I want to hear that shit that's on the radio. Get that shit on the radio, and then you come back oh, here and talk to me. Oh, shit. And I was like, <laughs> all right, damn. You know? Damn. But, you know, I kept going. Then I seen him. Russell has these, these uh, art um, parties in the Hamptons. Mm-hmm. And I seen him at one of his parties again. He remembered me. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, and he, you know, he asked me, like, the shit on the radio yet? You know, I was like, nah. <laughs> he, was like, just, he was just like, Yo, just keep working, man. You'll get something, you'll get something. And, you know, he laced me with a whole bunch of, I think it was Fat Farm at the time. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's fucking, that's a crazy story. And f- to the fact that he remembered you, that's even crazier. Because the amount of people that he meet da- that he met daily, you know, different faces. So that's kind of crazy he remembered that, so that I mean, story. He had to remember me because at the time, uh, my dad's in he's big time on Wall Street yeah. and finance. And he had a friend by the name of Tracy Maitland. Mm-hmm. And Tracy Maitland was managing Russell's money. He was managing Andre Harrell's money. Okay. Andre Harrell. So he had to remember me because of Tracy Maitland, right? Okay. And Tracy Maitland actually introduced me. My first executive that I ever met was Andre Harrell. He set up a meeting for me and Andre. And, you know, Andre was kind of like advising me, make sure I sign my artist for contracts and stuff like that. Andre was real cool. Mm-hmm. You have any, like, a specific advice you got from him at all? Did he leave you with anything? Sign. Sign all your artists. Sign all your producers. Make sure they sign to a contract because shit changes when shit starts to move. Mm-hmm. Crazy. That's a good advice, yeah. That's yeah, then they, they connected me with um, Phil Robinson. Mm-hmm. Right, my dad connected with Phil Robinson too. And Phil connected me with my first entertainment lawyer, which is Scott Felcher. Mm-hmm. Scott Felcher, you know, he gave me all the agreements that I needed for my clients at the time. He was very, and he didn't even charge me. Sheesh, yeah, that's, that's a good look. Yeah, yeah he, did, he did deals for me. He, didn't, he never charged me, man. Scott never charged me. He was like, yo, you were highly referred. Yeah, yep. that's all it takes. It's who you know in the industry as well. It's very important and keeping that character. Character is very important in the industry. It's who you know and who fucks with you. That's really what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People have to really they have to, they gotta fuck with you to really make phone calls or more the meals. But you know Scott fucks with Phil Robinson heavy. So when Phil calls Scott like, "Hey, take this kid," he yeah. did it. For, he did it for Phil. He didn't know me. He did it for Phil. Mhm. Mhm. It's crazy. Crazy. Now, knowing so many prominent people and working with so many prominent people, what is some advice you can give someone entering the game and trying to approach it the way you did and achieve the things that you did? I mean, I tell people all the time, you, you got to know the business. It's like you have the music, and you have the music business. So, mm-hmm. like when I know that when I realized that this is what I wanted to do, I I read all the books. Like I read all you need to know about the music business. 
Mm. I read the business of music. I read the business of artist management. I read uh, Russell Simmons' first book. Mm -hmm. um, I read Kevin Lyle's book. Like I would just read all the books about everything mm -hmm. because I wanted to know as much as possible because you have these, these, these artists and these producers and these creators that's, you know, they, they put in their career in your hand, mm -hmm. right? So they're trusting you to, to understand the business to make sure that they're not getting screwed over yeah. in a bad deal, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, my advice is like, if you want to do this music business, like you have so many outlets now, read the books, you know, listen to podcasts like this one about mm -hmm. other people in the music business, go on YouTube and, you know, look up people that you admire and just listen to their interviews and just, you know, get as much information as possible because it's going to help. Like when, you know, my first big clients with the fat boys and with them, I've probably placed, I want to say 30, 35 records. Jeez. And I've read every single contract because I wanted to know what the, the, the jargon was. I wanted to be mm -hmm. able, like Tango said, to negotiate my own contracts. Right. Mm -hmm. So every, Every deal that we did, you know, Tango would have me on the phone and have me listen to how he negotiated every contract in the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, and he would kind of coach me through it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you want to do this, there's so many outlets to learn about the business. But then at the end of the day, it's all about hustle and talent. Yeah. My air my, my and my talent always got me through the door, no matter, no matter what. Because at the end of the day, when you press play, that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. If it's trash, then you're not going to get too far. But you come through with quality talent, the door is going to open. And consistent, too. You have to be consistent with artists because the artists come and go. So it all depends on the manager as well. So, Yeah, I mean, you got to be consistent in mm -hmm. any and everything that you do. That's just like that's just like success one on one. If you want to be successful at something, yeah, yeah. you gotta be consistent. Mm -hmm. What do, what would you say like the cons are based on your experience in the entertainment industry? Things to watch out for. The cons is it's a business. Nothing's personal, and most of these people are not your friends. Right. Right. They you know they'll fuck with you because you hot, but then once your record is not on the radio, they stop answering your phone calls. Mm -hmm. Right, you start to really see who really fucks with you and who don't fuck with you. So it's like, but it's not, it's nothing personal though. It's, it's right. not personal. It's just like, it's, it's just unfortunately that's how the business is. But you know, a lot of people they also want to network, um, uh, like uh, above them, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's really great to network across because everyone that you look into in the same position as you, they're gonna make it. And your relationship with them is going to be so strong because you was with them when they were nobodies or when they didn't have no job or et cetera, et cetera. And those relationships are just going to grow. It's like, it's like you planting a seed, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, it's great to, you know, want to know, you know, the presidents of this company, the presidents of that company, but it's also great to know the interns mm -hmm. because the interns, they turn out, you know, and they become big A&Rs yeah. or big publicists or... Mm -hmm big writers and then you have an artist and now your network is all these people that they, they may work at Bill Ward or Hot New Hip Hop or 
Spotify. Yeah. Damn, I know these guys for five years. Yeah. And you pick up the phone, and then you can make it happen because you got the relationship with those people. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's very important to network across and just be honest and authentic. You know, just be yourself. You don't have to try and be like no nobody else. Mm-hmm. And a person's advice will take you as far as it took them. So that's also be careful who you listen to. There's many, yeah. many tricks up the sleeves. So what about like outside of the entertainment industry? Do you have any hobbies that you like to do? Hobbies really, I don't have that many hobbies. It's really basketball and traveling. I love to travel. Because mm-hmm. uh, everything that I do is just like, it's work. Right? I love what I do in music. I also run a um, Spotify promotion company called mm-hmm. PlaylistStreams.com. Most people that know me don't even know that. This is probably the first time I'm ever publicly saying that I own that company, but hmm, I own PlaylistStreams.com. Um, I've been doing playlists for like four or five years, but mm-hmm. um, a friend of mine who was another partner in another business, um, he saw what I was doing and he wanted to really open it up for the masses. So we started Playlist Streams last year, actually, last March in the beginning of the pandemic. Nice. And we're, nice. we're doing great because like, originally I started playlisting for one of my clients. Mm-hmm. I knew that this is where the, where the um, industry was going. And I knew that I needed an outlet for her music. Nice. So I built, I built the, you know, I built it up. I learned how to do it, and it's grown <laughs> a lot. Yeah, to, I, I do a lot of playlists for a lot of my friends, a lot of my peers, and additionally, playlist streams. You know, is, is, we're doing really great, and mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it just it it goes hand in hand because it's like I can create the records for you, and I can market the records. For you. Yeah, yeah, two to one. Yeah, 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 all in one. Yep. Yeah, so it's like, you no. Know, I, I haven't had an artist in a lot of years because I understand what it takes from a financial financial perspective. Mm-hmm. So I basically, I focus on producers mainly because like they get advances, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I had I had a kid at the time when everything was going on, so they get advances. And, you know, it was, you know, I always looked up to big producers like Rod Durkins, mm-hmm. Pharrell, mm-hmm. Timbaland, uh, Dr. Dre, Salam, Remy, like I always wanted to have a client like them, Teddy Riley, right? I always wanted to have that major, major, major producer. Yeah, the, so, the elites. Yeah, because I know like if you have a producer that's making these hits, I could easily follow an artist through that and get a deal. Yeah. So that's why I focused on producers. Like that's why I still to this day, I focus on producers because I know like, boom, once I get a producer really hot, I could come in with the artist next mm-hmm. and the producer is going to produce the hit for the artist, you know, and keep going like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, don't be afraid to like reinvent yourself. I had to reinvent myself when it came to the marketing side because, yeah, yeah. you and know, market changes all the time. So yeah. you have to, yeah, constantly. Yeah, man, it's just, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, market always changes. Yeah. Always, always, always. Now, what about like placements wise? Like if somebody's trying to get a placement and don't know how, what what do you think is the best approach to do it without being nagging and annoying when putting placements? Man, that's a great question because there's really no, 
there's really no right or wrong way, really. It's really just, if, if you're a producer or a songwriter, I would just work with people that you think are talented, that's your peers, mm -hmm. right? And especially if they have a team, they do marketing, marketing and, and they're going to get their music out there because like the music business is, is clicked up, right? right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to be on Chris Brown's album or Neil's album or any artist's album, they yeah. all have they they all have producers and songwriters that they've been working with from when they were beginning. Mm -hmm. So you trying to get in one of those albums, you're competing with the best producers and songwriters in the entire business, and you're competing with their team. Yeah. So for you to strike the iron. You got to come with a super incredible record. You can't come with a record that the artist normally is known for putting out. You yeah. got to come with something that's left mm -hmm. because you have to break through that barrier of not being in the clip. Because if you get that placement, you're taking food out of somebody on their team's Facts. mouth. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's like you have to have something really, really special, especially if you don't have a relationship. So that's like the hardest part, right? You know, but when you build with the artist from the beginning, it opens up doors for you, right? So I've only sold one record to an A&R, and that was that record to Brooklyn Johnny. Hmm. Everything else was putting my artists in the room with my, my clients in the room with the artists. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. And every, that, that's how it works. For, for me, at least, one, I only sold one record to one A&R. Everything else yeah. was artists in the room with the producers. And, mm -hmm. you know, I tell, I tell my clients all the time, you have to work and I have to work, right? I'll work yeah. my relationships within the music business community. You have to work your relationships in the creative community. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of artists, that's what they, they get a manager and then they get lazy and expect the manager to do everything for them. And that's yeah, why that's, they get no back end at all. Yeah, I, I've done that, like, um, I'll, I'll go back to college, right? Yeah. That's where it really started. I managed five artists in college. Um, we had my, my, my company, name my company is really Tweet Music Entertainment. I mm -hmm. started the LLC back in 2004, right? I managed, I threw all the parties at Penn State. I am a Penn State alumni. I threw all the parties at, in the club every Friday. I wasn't even 21 years old. We had the hottest hip hop night at Penn State. And then, you know, the clips was coming to Penn State and my mm -hmm. friends were rappers, right? Mm -hmm. So they all rappers. I don't rap. So they, I'm in business school. They're like, yo, Naj, you the manager. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, all right, whatever. Yeah. And that's how I became a manager. Mm -hmm. But I had them on the radio. We had a song called We Are Penn State that played at the football games. Mm -hmm. We had two, two write-ups in magazine in, in um, the Daily Collegian, which is a newspaper on campus, right? So I was like, damn, I'm, I'm pretty good at this shit. Mm -hmm. And I just kept going from there. It, I mean, it, it helped. It, pay, it paid off in the end. I mean, you learned. Yeah. You, know, you know what I mean? Well, overall, what, what have you learned so far, like being in the industry for so long? What have you learned so far? Yeah, only as hot as your last record that you put out. <laughs> mm -hmm. that's, that's the main one right there. And really just like, be genuine. Mm -hmm. Keep your word. Like I say to myself, you know what I'm saying I don't really, I don't talk about nobody. I want everybody to win. That's 
all my that's that's me that's my entire life so it's just like we just keep you worried if you can't do something tell someone you can't do something and another thing is always respond to emails right so when i was coming up a lot of people never responded to me Mm -hmm. right i would send emails and emails and emails no response no response no response i hated it right because for me i just wanted to know like do you like the song you don't like the song if you don't like the song that's fine. That's okay. Yeah. Right. So yeah. every up and coming artist or producer or songwriter, I try to respond to them every email, even if it's five, six weeks later, I'll listen yeah. to the music mm-hmm. and I'll try to respond because like I've noticed, like I got a lot of friends that's executives, like presidents of labels, CEOs of labels. Yeah. And when I email them, they automatically, they always respond, whether it's a day or two days later. It's everyone that's in between. Yeah, that don't respond, mm-hmm. and you know I aspire to be that president, that CEO, that executive. So you know I, 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 I you know I follow their blueprint. Like if I email Troy Carter right now, he's going to respond to me. If I email Barry Weiss, Ethiopia, they're all going to respond to me. Yeah, whether it's a day or two late later, they're always going to respond to me. Mm-hmm. Right, and mm-hmm. you know. Always respond. It just takes two seconds. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You could be busy, but you take that time. Your job is really to listen to music yeah. and discover talent. So, like, really do your job. Like, you could be busy, but you know, I love music, so I want to hear it. I want to. I want to know this is the next artist or the next producer or the next songwriter. And you know, I try to give them positive feedback. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, your melodies were incredible, but you got to work on your lyrics. So, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So that these people are creatives. Like you don't want to just be negative the whole time. You want to give them like some type of constructive criticism, even if it's just one thing yeah. that can help them be better in the future. And it goes back to when Fat Joe always mentions, man, Eminem gave me his tape six times and I said no to him. And then Dr. Yeah. Dre got Eminem. Yeah, exactly. There's going to be, there's going to be a lot of no's before there's maybe a, uh, okay, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? It's gonna be like you gotta have, th- you gotta really want this, man. Like, yeah, I remember when I got out of college, right? Mm-hmm. Even before I got out of college, I had those those five rappers. I said to them, I was like, I'm never gonna stop this. Y'all ready? Y'all, y'all put something in me mm-hmm. that I realized fueled me, right? One, my friend um, Kevin James. He's the reason why I do this. You know, God bless his soul. He passed away in 2019. Um, but my mother died when I was in college. And Kevin, his mother died when he was 13, right? And he was like a rapper. He reminded everybody of Biggie. He's the reason why I do this. He brought me in the studio because the studio was the only place that I went to that took my mind away from my mother's death. It was like my sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thank him for everything because he kind of pushed me. He gave he 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 told me I could do this. And then when I left college, I told all the all of them I'm never gonna stop. I still do this to this day. And then when I graduated school, I I was a property manager in New York City. I managed all Long Island Railroad uh as a property manager. I hated the job, mm-hmm. but I did shit like when I got connected with Phil Robinson, Phil used to be like, yo, meet me and I'll hop uptown. Yeah, at yeah. 12, 12 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Yo, Phil don't know I got a job, but 
I'm going to make it happen. Yeah. I would go to Harlem in the middle of my day, and I would hang out with Phil Robinson for hours, come back to work later. Because I didn't really, I didn't care. It yeah, was like, this is, exactly. I didn't want to do this. This I really wanted to do this. Mm-hmm. And if executive like Phil Robinson wants to give me some of his time, which is the most valuable asset you could give someone, I'm going to take it because this is what I wanted to do. Right. If you don't know who Phil Robinson is, you can look him up. You know, he was managing Puff Daddy at the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I know I wanted to be in the music business, so I would do stuff like that. And then in 2008, um, I left my job. And I opened up a sneaker store with Nigel Sylvester called Format. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I did that was because I needed more time to be outside. Like music and fashion goes Facts. hand in hand. One. Facts, yeah. Mm-hmm. I had an artist by the name of Lydia Caesar at the time. And we were doing a whole bunch of shows all over New York. And, you know, I know that having my own business gave me more free time to do what I wanted. So if I had to go to this meeting or that meeting, I would, I would, I had the flexibility to do that, right? Mm-hmm. So I bring that up because Lydia was very uh, influential, influential in my career because she opened a lot of doors for me, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't know nothing about singing. I didn't know nothing about singing in the studio, harmony, none of that shit, right? Swimming but when with you, the sharks. Pretty yeah. Much. So when you when you dealing with a singer and an entertainer. And the talent like she was, I've learned a, a lot, right? She started writing when she was 19. So now I'm in, I worked with her with that process. And we did, I want to say, every single venue in New York City, probably outside of Madison Square Garden as an independent artist, mm-hmm. right? My first record meeting, my first publishing meeting was at Warner Chapel. I met with Sam Taylor and Shanique Gonzalez, mm-hmm. both friends to, till today. Right. And Lydia um, had interest from a publishing company that was affiliated with Stargate. And when I brought her over there, they introduced me to the Philly Fat Boys. So it's like when my career with Lydia ended, my career with the Fat Boys started. And with the Fat Boys, you know, we did Tonight for John Legend. Mm -hmm. We did The Thrill for Miguel. We did um, the TLC song in the in the in the, uh, in the movie. We did Yo Gotti and Neo. We did a whole bunch of records, whole bunch of records. Mm-hmm. Like we had four Grammy nominations with those mm-hmm. guys, right? Mm-hmm. I started working with them. We got a Grammy nomination with Legacy, right? Yeah. And Crazy. and everything goes full circle. When I stopped working with them, our last Grammy nomination was with Legacy. <laughs> Sheesh. Hmm. So. With them, you know, I probably had three number one records, mm-hmm. two platinum records, a gold record, four Grammy nominations, right? And this is this is how I'm gonna fuck everybody's head up. I did all that shit. I was on house arrest. Fuck that. What? I, I was on house arrest. I had to be in the crib by nine o'clock every night because, you know, I went to school to be an investment banker. Yeah. Right. I couldn't do that. Because I got arrested in college, mm-hmm. I caught a I caught a felony case for selling heroin. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really, really running a heroin operation. I didn't sell heroin, but I ran the operation. Facts, okay. And you know, I got you know twenty three months house arrest and fifteen years probation. All right, in 
2005, right? They didn't call me to do my house arrest until 2012, 2013. Fuck. And at this time, tonight is in thing like a man movie. It was it was num- number one on Urban AC charts. Mm-hmm. It was Miguel record was working with Miguel. He was working with everybody. TLC, Pooh Bear, Sean Garrett, Priscilla Renee. You name it, we worked with them. Yeah. Neo, of course, who was on yeah, yeah, yeah. I got plenty of records with Neo. And I was on I was on house arrest. So it's like I was having all this success, but I couldn't really move, move around like but that. But once once all of that is over though, you were like, I, I can enjoy the fruits of the labor now. Yeah, but it's different. Like cause when you hot and you in the studios, yeah, yeah. Like it true. brings more. Like my, I built my whole business being in the studio. So mm-hmm. not being in the studio after nine o'clock, that's where everything goes down in New York City. I yeah. couldn't be in the clubs. I couldn't be in the studios. I couldn't do none of that. So it's like, yeah, I was having success, but I still was a little limited because I couldn't go nowhere. Mm-hmm. I, it was hard for me to travel. Like I, I only go to LA during like BET weekend or Grammy Con. That's when I would get permission to go. But you know, so. I did all of that on house arrest, most of it. Jeez. That's a crazy story. That's like a movie right there. Like a little short story movie. I wanted it though. I really wanted it. I really, really, really wanted it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is when the music business was shit. Like, it was horrible. Like, but we was getting our clients $20,000, $25,000 a record. You know what I'm saying? They had a horrible publishing deal. Like, they their publishing deal was probably the worst publishing deal I've ever seen. They had to do like four hundred MDRC. They had but they had they had to have three singles and that was each option. They had three options. So every time we had a single, we renegotiate the publishing deal. Tango and I we re- renegotiate the publishing deal to a point where. We got them out of that publishing deal. John Legend ended up getting them, letting them go out of the publishing mm-hmm. deal. I want to say in 2016, maybe. Mm-hmm. But every, like when we had a John Legend record, like this is like Tango teaching me the game. Cause I would have never knew when you have a single, you could renegotiate your publishing deal. Oh, really? I didn't even know that part. Yeah, it's crazy. So every, so every every time we had a single, we'd go back to renegotiate. Oh, let's take this out. Let's take this out. To a point where it got to, they like we made BMG over millions and millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So, you know, John just let them out. He didn't have to, but he let them out. Yeah, yeah. Which goes back to the whole contract thing. Make sure you have contracts for everything. But but also like as a creative, don't be too greedy. Yeah. And, and and anxious to sign any deal like the deal mm-hmm. that they signed my guys at the time i was i wasn't their manager when they did that but if i was i knew better than to sign the deal that they did but they were just so anxious to be in a music business that they signed it and, and thank god you know they had hits and stuff to get out of it yeah. most people most people is oh, not going yeah. to get out of that. Like, like you understand, they had to have a single. They had to have three singles to get out of the option. So even if they did five, six hundred percent, 
and none of them was a single, they still would be in that option. Yeah. Yeah, man. Too many loopholes you have to go around to just, just to get it right. Just to Yeah, I mean, right. just get a lawyer at the end of the day, man. Yeah. It's worth it. Pay that thousand dollars or whatever they charging and and read the contract and have to look over it because you know, people out here they would definitely take advantage of you, man. They would mm-hmm. they would take advantage of you. Like I remember my new clients right now, probably is the breed, right? I've been managing the breed almost a year and a half. And I remember we had this song coming out on this artist, right? And this is my first deal dealing with them. And because, you know, I learned the business and I know the publishing game really, really, really well, thanks to Tango. The the splits came back for this record, right? And mind you, my guys did the the whole production. Mm-hmm. And we had a songwriter from Australia do the chorus, right? So, you know, songwriter is very green. He knows nothing about the music business. So the splits mm-hmm. come back, right? The songwriter wrote the chorus. He's not even on the splits. And then my client's splits was about, I want to say 30%, right? Mm-hmm. And if you don't if you don't know, as a music producer, if you did all the music on your own, you're entitled to 50% of the publishing, right? Yeah. I knew all of this. So I'm going back and forth with the with the guys like with the A and R, like, listen, I'm looking at these splits and they don't add up, right? One. We, we we did the beat, so 50% right. of that is ours. So I don't know everybody else's splits is, but if we're not getting 50%, we're not doing this deal, right? And then on top of that, I didn't know the, the songwriter, but I'm the type of person who, I'm a fight for whoever because I don't like to see people get taken advantage of. So I'm like, yo, the songwriter wrote the chorus, man. Like, he got to at least get 15%. Yeah. So now... That's 65%. So there's only 35% left. Left to do, yep. So, you know, they want to fight back and forth, but I'm like standing still, like, listen, my guys are not, my producers are not giving up no publishing. So it's mm-hmm. 50%, and that's that. I don't care what everybody else want to do, but they're getting that 50%. And you know, he didn't like that. He didn't like it at all. Yeah. But that was the right thing to do. That's, that's how it is. Like, you ain't going to come and try to bully us on the other side, but if you're a new manager, you don't know no better, you're gonna just take it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that's the music business. People will try to take advantage of you if if they can. And if yeah. you know better, they don't like it. Yeah. It's almost like uh like trying <gasps> trying to dish the plate right back at them when they yeah. hand you a plate and they don't like when you give it back. It's crazy. My philosophy man is listen, there's enough money for everybody. Mm-hmm. Especially now. Like we was in a music biz my my first hit came out in 2012. John Legend Tonight came out in 2012, mm-hmm. right? I wish that was right now, because I have way more money. You know what I'm saying? My clients will have way more money, but yeah. right now, like, I remember being in business, my friends, they're like, yo, what are you doing? Like, there ain't no money in the music business, but I knew that, you know, there's peaks and valleys. I, yeah. I For some reason, I knew that it was a light at the end of the tunnel. They was gonna figure this shit out. So yeah. now it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot mm-hmm. of fun now. There's money in it. You know, mm-hmm. people who get paid. So it's just like, you know, and you it's gotta a, stick with it. It's the number one genre in the, in the world right now. So It's hip hop. I'm, I'm going to tell you a story about that, right? Yeah. So back when we did, 
you did the Yo Gotti and Neo record, respect that you earned, right? Mm-hmm. My producers, they mainly, they're from Philly, so they mainly know their musicians for R&B, right? But they was trying so hard to get into hip hop, hip hop, hip hop. Right, right. And I don't know why. You know, I love hip hop. I come from that, right? Right. A lot, a lot of my my friends and people, they from the streets, right? Mm-hmm. But with hip hop, it's a different type of culture. It's a different type of drums. Yeah. It's a different type of knock. It's a different type of kick. It's different mm-hmm. everything. And the money just wasn't the same. So I'm like, yo, because at the time. Record label, they weren't paying no ten, fifteen thousand dollars a beat for no hip hop acts. Yeah. They, were, they were trying to give you five thousand, seventy five hundred. Mm-hmm. So I was telling talking to my clients, like, yo, we're getting twenty, twenty-five thousand a record. Why do y'all want to do hip hop? It's seventy five hundred. Yeah. You're not making no money doing that. And then the sales mm-hmm. is like lackluster because you know, you have piracy, mm-hmm. people selling CDs, all types of bullshit. So they was kind of screwing the urban, the urban market. Now it's different. Everything is urban. Now they want to, you know, they're still trying not pay you, but they have the money. You know, yeah, then before yeah. they, they didn't have the money, but now it's like ur- everything urban, urban, urban. Number one, John, you look at the hot yeah. 100, yeah. it's probably 70% urban. But now yeah. it's making all the money. They're still trying to not pay people, but, you know, I'm happy to see that mm-hmm. the urban genre is where it's at. We just mm-hmm. need more. Black executives at the top because it's our culture. We know our culture better than anybody else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know, uh, it comes with the game, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, towards the end of the podcast, I have these ten rapid questions I asked that I got from Inside the Actor Studios, hosted mm-hmm. by James Lipton. Uh, the first question is, "What is your favorite word?" My favorite word is faith. What is your least favorite word? My least favorite word is no. What turns you on in life? What turns me on in life? Mm -hmm. The fact that you can create something out of nothing. What turns you off in life? Turns me off? Mm -hmm. Um, Ego. What sound or noise do you love? I love the sound of a money machine. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's a good sound. That's a great sound. What sound or noise do you hate? Um, a sound or noise I hate is sirens, police sirens. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite curse word? My favorite curse word? Mm-hmm. Pussor. That's it. That's a Jamaican word. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Real estate. I do it for real estate. What profession would you not like to do? I could never be a waiter, a service, mm-hmm. anyone in that capacity, food. I'll own a restaurant, but I could never be a waiter. Mm-hmm. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I would like him to say, welcome, and here is your mother. Any last words you'd like to give to the people? Any shout-outs? And where can they follow you on the social? Um, any last words? Really, take your ego out of everything. You know? Mm-hmm. Take it, try, try, to, try to be 
come from a place of egoless situations and take your emotions out of it because there's no emotions in business. Um, you can follow me um, at Nigel Sparks, N-I-G-E-L-S-P-A-R-K-E-S I'm on all platforms. Um, everybody spells my name wrong, but it's really S-P-A-R-K-E-S, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, and that's really it. You know, I just want to shout out any and everyone that took, any and everybody that took the time in my career to listen to a song, have a meeting with me, or reply to an email. Yeah. All right, guys. This was another episode of Intuitive Minds Podcast. Peace. Thanks.